0: Hello, this is Dr. Chuck McGathy from Madison's First Baptist Church, and this is the message for the first Sunday of Lent entitled Pastor Peter Preaches. It is based on First Peter chapter three, verses eighteen through twenty two. First, the scripture. 1 Peter three eighteen through 22 from the New Revised Standard Version, updated edition. For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, in order to bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which also he went and made a proclamation to the spirits in prison who in former times did not obey when God waited patiently in the days of Noah during the building of the ark, in which a few, that is eight lives, were saved through water. And baptism, which is prefigured, which this prefigured now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels' authorities and powers made subject to him. There are some portions of the Bible that may be read in part, but need to be considered in whole. If I were to try and confine my explanation of today's scripture to the slice that was just... Read it would be very easy to misunderstand the meaning of the passage. The way to avoid misunderstanding is simple. Consider the entire letter of First Peter. I think I can take this approach today in such a way as to help this beautiful pastoral letter make better sense and to still get us out on time. Now, you should know that this is not a bad practice anytime we consider the Bible, but it may be just a bit more necessary whenever we consider the letters called epistles found in the New Testament. You see, their letters were much like our letters. They pick up in the middle of a conversation. We're not privileged to know the exact details about the situations the writers were referring to. We, therefore, become instantly curious and to try and piece together who exactly wrote the letter and to whom it was addressed. We also want to know the time periods and circumstances the recipients were in. Once we become reasonably sure of these things, then we are well on our way to not only understanding the letter, but also seeing its value for us in our present circumstances. Now, an interesting thing about the composition of this letter is that Peter, who is the accepted author, most likely had a bit of help in writing it. We are blessed in this regard because at the conclusion of the letter, we learned that someone named Sylvanus helped Peter express his ideas. Sylvanus was an expert in the use of the Greek language, and it would appear that he and the Apostle Peter collaborated to present a well-crafted message for a Greek-speaking and a Greek-thinking audience. Knowing this fact is going to prove very helpful when we look closer at the passage of today's Scripture. That Peter had help of his educated friend in this effort is apparent in chapter 5, verse 12, but as we read onward in the concluding comments, we also discover two more interesting things. First, we can get an idea of where this letter, being written to the churches in faraway Asia Minor, roughly in the area of modern-day Turkey, was composed. In the text, Peter expresses, and Silvanus writes, that they are in Babylon. Don't let that word, Babylon, throw you. The early Christians often referred to the city of Rome as Babylon. It was for them a way of coping with a difficult place to live out their faith. In the Old Testament, we know that Babylon was a place of exile and testing for the Hebrew people. And no doubt the early followers of Christ living in that most difficult time and place drew example and courage from their faith of the from the faith of their spiritual forebears. Secondly, there is also an interesting mention of Mark, whom Peter refers to as his son. I think this is the same Mark who has written the Gospel of Mark. Of course, his close association with Peter, an association that began in Jerusalem, indicates that Peter was likewise a source for this rendition of the good news. I think there is in this a grand lesson we might proudly embrace. That is the work of grace we are involved in is and always has been a collaborative effort. The Church of Jesus Christ relies upon all of us to spread the hopeful and powerful message of God's redeeming love for all. Now, knowing just this much about the epistle of 1 Peter helps a lot in understanding The passage for today, but I think I can make it a bit more clearer when I tell you something of the circumstances of the people to whom the great disciple was writing. Throughout this letter, Peter is speaking very much as a pastor to his people, even though they are located far away, they are dealing with a growing problem. The deliberate persecution of Christians was a growing reality. Persecution can take many forms, but it was becoming most painful in Rome and beyond into Roman-controlled areas. The story of the persecution is fascinating, horrifying, and informative all at once. Knowing a bit of that story helps us understand the message of this letter so much better. That great Bible scholar, William Barclay, expertly describes the rise of Christian persecution. There was a time when the Christians had little to fear from the Roman government. In Acts, it is repeatedly the Roman magistrates and the Roman soldiers and officials who saved Paul from the fury of his fellow Jews and pagans likewise. The reason was that in the early days, the Roman government was not able to distinguish between Jews and Christians. Within the empire, Judaism was what was called A religio licita, a permitted religion. For some time, the Romans simply regarded Christians as a Jewish sect and therefore did not molest them. The 19th of July in the year 63 is a most important date on the Christian calendar because it is that date that starts a profound escalation in the persecution of followers of Christ. You see, on that day, a great fire broke out in the Roman capital city. The emperor at that time was Claudius Caesar Augustus Germanicus, better known as Nero. The fire burned fiercely for three days, and Rome was nearly wiped out. Even after they thought it was over, it broke out again with redoubled destruction. The Romans knew who was to blame. They placed the blame upon the Emperor Nero. They believed that he had instigated the destruction so that he might rebuild according to his grand designs. Now, the truth is we do not know for sure what or who caused the fire, but the rumor accusing Nero was hardly satisfactory to the insecure ruler. The resentment of the people was bitter. Nero had to divert suspicion from himself. A scapegoat had to be found. Tacitus, the Roman historian, tells the story, quote, neither human assistance in the shape of imperial gifts nor attempts to appease the gods could remove the sinister report that the fire was due to Nero's own orders. And so in the hope of dissipating the rumor, he falsely diverted the charge onto a sect of people to whom the vulgar gave the name Christian's and who were detested for the abominations they perpetuated. The founder of the sect was Christus by name, had been executed by Pontius Pilate in the reign of Tiberius. And the dangerous superstition, though put down for the moment, broke out again not only in Judea, the original home of the pest, but even in Rome, where everything shameful and horrible collects and is practiced. Now, I wanted you to hear that for at least two reasons. One is so that you may know that our faith is attested to beyond the Bible. Clearly, the Roman Tacitus cared very little for the followers of Jesus, but in his writing, we find remarkable confirmation of the story told in the Gospels. The second reason you need to know this is because it worked. Nero succeeded in persuading many that the Christians were disloyal traitors who were not to be trusted. In fact, this sect was now separated from the Jews and seen as vermin worthy of every kind of brutality. Now the white hot spotlight was trained upon our spiritual ancestors. The people all across the empire began to notice their differences too. Some of what they suspected was nothing more than an ancient conspiracy theory. Sounding remarkably modern in tone, the conspiracy rumors even accused Christians of cannibalism and orgies. Because Christians participated in the Lord's Supper and their meetings were called the Love Feast, witless Romans convinced one another that these people were societal pariahs. It does not take too much imagination to see how an act of persecution of the new covenant people began. To be honest, though, there were legitimate differences in the Christians that concerned everyone, including the Christians themselves. Of course, the followers of Jesus had to deal with a hostile government, but they had also some fundamental beliefs that set them apart from the rest of the world they inhabited. The first I might mention is the pervasiveness of Slavery. Slavery was a way of life in the Roman world. No one questioned it. No one challenged it. It was an accepted reality. But that is a far cry from saying that the early believers or the religious literature they shared supported human slavery. In fact, it did not, even though it acknowledged that the world of their day was saturated with this peculiar evil. To those who had to dwell in this sinful system, some as slaves themselves, Peter writes words of encouragement. Another example of a value difference between the early church and the Roman world concerned the treatment of women. Women were held in a place of inferiority in almost every culture. They were considered as property, and their rights in marriage were subjugated to the head male, the pater familias. Yet the Christians were different. They, following the example of Jesus, elevated women. Women were regarded as important in the family of God. Because of that, marriages of believers began to look more and more egalitarian. But then that too raised an issue with those of mixed marriages A Christian woman married to an unchristian man and vice versa was bound to upset the status quo. Even those outside of a marriage observing a value shift felt threatened by the treatment women received in Christian homes. The bottom line for the writing of this letter is that the original readers were finding themselves increasingly alienated. Their attitudes toward government, the institution of slavery, and the emerging equality of women put them not only in a place of distinction, but also under threat of physical violence. Finally, there is one more thing, the fear of death. Now, knowing these significant challenges of Christians in the early church, we gain a great insight into the pastoral response of Peter. Yet bear in mind, Peter has been nicknamed the great fisherman. His mind is on more than just keeping the fledgling church alive. Peter is aware and engaged in the work of the good news. He desires to spread the gospel, and his instructions and encouragement for the family of God are to be busy doing the same. The evil of the age is no match for the power of God's grace. Knowing this helps us grasp the meaning of his opening words in our scripture today. This is how the New King James Version renders this passage. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. Now, from this faith proclamation, Christian people of every age and every difficulty should draw new strength. People of all ages and times have had to live under conditions that were less than ideal. Persecutions, marginalizations, alienations, and disaffections are all part of following Jesus Christ. Indeed, the great apostle Paul affirms this when he writes, all that live godly in Christ will be persecuted. Now, the kinds And degrees of persecutions may change, but the fact remains that at some point our living faith may invite misunderstanding, even disapproval. Peter was not encouraging his fellow believers to be odd for God, but to be loving, kind, and patient toward those captives in a sin-sick world. Their world was rife with corrupt governments, cruel persecutors, those who owned people and those who treated women as less than human. So when he reminds them of God's great grace, he is confirming that they have the power to overcome the world. But then he goes onward in his decree. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison. What does it mean that Jesus preached to the spirits in prison? This theological idea has been coined as the harrowing of hell. For many years, it was even included in the words of the Apostles' Creed. However, not all who say it now include the phrase, he descended into hell. The reason for that omission is due to a closer look at the original. Some Christian scholars remind us that we need to differentiate here between the terms Hades and hell. To the Greeks, Hades is the abode of the dead. It is roughly equivalent to the Hebrew term Sheol. Hell, on the other hand, is understood as a place where God is entirely absent. Now, I do not want anyone to stress greatly over this. This is the kind of distinction that interests seminarians and writers of biblical commentaries. What I want you to understand is this. God cares for everyone. Jesus died for everyone and everyone from every time might enjoy his salvation. This is the point I think that Peter was trying to impress upon his flock. Allow me to share again from Dr. Barclay. He helps make this understandable in three ways. Since Christ descended into Hades, then his death was no sham. It is not to be explained in terms of a swoon on the cross or anything like that. He really experienced death and rose again. At its simplest, the doctrine of the descent into Hades lays down the complete identity of Christ with our human condition, even to the experience of death. Secondly, since Christ descended into Hades, it means that his triumph is universal. This is, in fact, a truth that is ingrained into the New Testament. He who ascended into heaven is he who first descended into the lower parts of the earth. The total submission of the universe to Christ is woven into the thought Of the New Testament. And thirdly, since Christ descended into Hades and preached there, there is no corner of the universe into which the message of grace has not come. There is in this passage the solution of one of the most haunting questions raised by the Christian faith what is to happen to those who lived before Jesus Christ and to those to whom the gospel never came? The doctrine of the descent into Hades conserves this precious truth that no one who ever lived is left without a sight of Christ and without the offer of the salvation of God. Many in repeating the creed have found the phrase he descended into hell either meaningless or bewildering and have tacitly agreed to set it aside and forget it. It may well be, though, that we ought to think of this as a picture painted in terms of poetry rather than a doctrine stated in terms of theology. But it contains these three great truths that Jesus Christ not only tasted death, but drained the cup of death. That the triumph of Christ is universal and that there is no corner of the universe into which the grace of God has not reached. There is then in this great letter from the great fisherman, a challenge to the church of all ages. Share the good news. The resurrection of Jesus changes everything. It liberates the captive. It cleanses us from sin and it offers us all a new life. We are free from our greatest enemy. Death no longer holds us in its icy grip, but has been defeated by the Lord of life. Baptism paints the picture. We, too, descend into Hades, but we are raised to new life through God's great gift of grace made possible through Jesus Christ. This, then, is the message of hope and our start on our Lenten journey. Thanks be to God. Amen.